0: So, a good API is intuitive to use because it generally follows a set of standards that other tools in that suite have used. But a good API is also interoperable, it's extensible, you know, there's so many things. So, I have a comment on bit flipping, but I'm going to save that for later. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Bandwidth for ChangeLog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. Our feature flags are powered by LaunchDarkly. Check them out at LaunchDarkly.com. And we're hosted on Leno cloud servers. Get $100 in hosting credit at linodecom slash changelog. What's up, party people? I want to introduce AWS Amplify as a new sponsor here at JS Party. Amplify is a suite of tools and services that enable developers to build full-stack serverless and cloud-based web and mobile apps using their framework and tech of choice. Amplify is built to make front-enders successful because you can use your existing skill set to build full-stack apps that in the past would require deep knowledge around backend, DevOps, and scalable infrastructure. Amplify simplifies all of that. Amplify gives you easy access to hosting, authentication, managed GraphQL, serverless functions, APIs, machine learning, chatbots, and storage for files like images, videos, and PDFs. Check the link in the show notes for details or head to awsamplify.info slash jsparty Again, awsamplify.info slash DSParty.
2: Welcome everyone. You're listening to JS Party, a weekly celebration of JavaScript and the web. We record live on Thursdays at 1 p.m. US Eastern. That's 10 a.m. Pacific. Join in on the hijinks in the JS Party channel of our community Slack. It's totally free, it's totally cool. Head to chainsaw.com/slash community and sign up today. Let's do this. Hey, it's party time, y'all. Oh yes, the sound of those master Cylinder beats means it's time once again for JS Party. My name is Jared, I'm your internet friend, and I'm very happy to have three of my internet friends with me. Suze is here, what's up Suze? What's up? JS Party is up, and Amel as well. Howdy Amel.
0: Howdy howdy.
2: And we have Bone Skull here, what is going on Chris?
3: What's up everybody in the house?
2: Everybody in the house say yeah yeah.
3: All the ladies in the house say yeah.
2: Okay, we have a listener request once again. Hey, we're just answering our listener requests left and right lately, so uh, kudos to us. I guess they're so smart. Did you know that we take requests? Like any good wedding DJ, or maybe even the bad ones, probably take requests. <laughs> you can head to changeall.com/slash/request. Let us know a guest, a topic, a panelist. In fact, Amel, you were requested this time, my friends. And we would like to take it up on a future episode. So that's completely free and accessible. And this one was requested by Thomas Eckert, who also happens to be hanging out in the live chat room. So shout out to Thomas. Did you know we record live? Probably because I say it all the time, but I'll say it again. changeallcom slash live every Thursday at 1 p.m. U.S. Eastern. So Thomas wrote in and he
4: said, In a previous episode, Amal said jQuery has a well-designed API. I kind of know it when I see it with good API design, but I would love to hear about the learnings, mistakes, pitfalls, and guidance for how to make a good API.
2: So the gauntlet has been thrown. We all have opinions on the matter. Some of us are expert (laughs) API designers. I'm more of an expert API user. I have opinions because I use a lot of them. (laughs) But we're happy to talk about that in detail so first up let's define the term let's lay the ground rules i think a lot of people when they think api they immediately go to probably a subset of what the term is applied to which is usually like a web api or a service but it's more broad than that would anybody like to tackle api define it and then talk about the scope of the term
0: i nominate Seconded.
4: (laughs) well we can start with what it stands for first because otherwise that would be bad if we talked for the entire episode saying API, API, API. Um, it does not stand for American Petroleum Institute in this case, um, which I think is an API. <laughs> it stands for Application Programming Interface, which actually sounds like a mouthful. I guess like being able to describe it in a broad sense, usually I describe it as some software, like a collection of software abstractions that programmers used in order to kind of, you, you have two sort of contexts of software that need to talk to each other. And for different reasons, you would create an API in order to make it easier or a nicer experience in order to interact with, you know, between those two, um, I guess, interfaces to use the the word in the definition. Uh-huh. And I th- I think that's the, I guess, like the most abstract broad definition you can give it, but, you know, as an example, like, jQuery is a library, and it provides an API or a programming interface to the DOM in the browser. And what it does is it smooths over and creates consistency across all the browsers, but it also gives you a really nice nice feeling enjoyable to use and sort of we'll talk about like what makes a good API in in another segment but it just makes it a a nicer experience so that you can be much more productive as well and so I think an API does a lot of different things and it almost that almost helps define like what it actually is but then there's other things like you know Jared you talked about how there are internet web-based APIs that actually link out to external services And I mean, the two software pieces coming together there are, you know, your particular website needs to speak to another external website in order to do something that that external website is way better at doing for you. You know, instead of having some kind of like awful low level interface to do that, you know, you can provide everything from libraries to HTTP routes, uh, you know, in order for people to communicate with you. So it's really just a communication layer between Different pieces of software, I guess. Mm. Can anybody do any better than that? Given that I was put on the spot. <laughs> yeah. I know.
3: You mentioned the low, awful low-level things. So, but there are awful low-level APIs, right?
4: Mm-hmm. That is true.
3: So, if if you have a, I don't know, maybe you got a some electronics module, like I don't know, some sort of sensor or something, and maybe it speaks like SPI or something. Mm-hmm you need to send it a series of bytes back and forth to talk with it and that sort of thing. And there, there's a, an example, I would say, of an API. You know, SPI may be the protocol, but whatever those bytes are that, that you're sending back and forth to the module are, is, is the programming interface. Right. Likewise, things like... If you're old like me maybe you remember like modems where you mm-hmm. would call up to a BBS and the API for your modem was the AT command interface. So, yeah. There are low-level APIs and high-level APIs.
4: And I think that's a good point because when you think about it, SPI is almost like the higher level than the lower level which would be literally, you know, pushing electrons and bit flipping by hand, right? And so it's it's totally. interesting how you can get even lower than something like SPI, even though SPI is considered a, a low-level thing. So it's kind of like totals all the way down, I guess, as far as APIs go.
0: <laughs> That's like honestly such a good segue to how I kind of interpreted API. And by the way, Suze, your definition was amazing and like perfect as always. For me, like I kind of think of API as like A poke interface, you
4: know? (laughs) Explain.
0: Yeah. I love
4: that so much.
0: Yeah, like a poke interface, right? So it's like the way you are leveraging someone else's code, and it's the way you, it's like, here, poke my code this way if you want to get this thing, right? So, like, kind of like a game of Twister, right? But like, with your fingers on the keyboard. And, you know, you're typing things to make this other thing do a thing, you know? And so it's really a contract. It's like, hey, this is how I'm used. I ha- I do all the stuff underneath. I'm an iceberg. And the, you, all you see is my tip, you know, like the tip of the iceberg. And you're not looking, you know, you don't know what's underneath. And what's really nice about APIs in general is it's the abstraction, right? So someone or someone's has done the job of this, you know, taking away some piece of complexity and bundling it up, packaging it up into a nice interface for you to poke.
2: <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, I like that.
0: I love this so much. This is like such a great definition. Thank you. And to kind of segue on the like things we're going to talk about a bit later, like a poke interface should have a perfect intuition or whatever, right? for For a user, right? So in the sense that like there's a set of typical, I would say, patterns for tools that fall within certain genres and I think the more alignment there is like for what a user would expect when using this type of a tool like the easier it is for a user to like just for a developer in this case to just kind of you know run run with a new tool right because if you're kind of like the less cryptic the faster you're able to like the less cryptic and the less domain knowledge you know that you have to attain to use said thing the faster you're able to move. And so Unix is, I think, for me, best API design like ever, I think, like, you, you know, Unix and then jQuery as well, right? But like, Unix kind of had some very forward-thinking stuff when they were like, do one thing and one thing well, and make things composable. And, you know, if you think about how Unix is, like, APIs are like these Lego on, blocks back. that all connect into each other, like, it's kind of amazing, you know? Yeah.
2: Well, I will add my amen to that. I believe the Unix philosophy.
0: So yeah. So a good API is intuitive to use because, you know, it generally follows a set of standards that other tools in that suite have used. But a good API is also interoperable. It's extensible. You know, there's so many things. So I have a comment on bit flipping, but I'm going to save that for later. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Let me add a couple of thoughts here real quick. So We talked about high level and low level, networked and maybe like local host, right? The the broadness there, maybe the depth, where you can go all the way up the network stack to like an application API. Maybe you're talking about the Stripe API, and you can go all the way down to the hardware and talk about those low level APIs and bit flipping and different things. There's also kind of an inside out way of looking at it. So I joked earlier that I'm more of an API user, but if an API is an interface to your program, and you write any sort and you're a programmer, then you write APIs. So the simplest way to think about it is when you define a function, your function's name plus its external properties, such as the parameters it takes and those types, if it's typed, you are designing an API when you write a function. Now you may be the only consumer of that API. Your own code may be the only one ever consuming it, but it's an API nonetheless. Or when you do like a capital uppercase poke API, like the Stripe API or the GitHub API, you're now writing a very similar thing conceptually. It's just that it has way more depth to it and things underneath it. And it's also more, it's third party. So you're calling into that from somewhere else. So that's why I say it's so broad because it can go from like, how do I name my functions? And how do I accept parameters? To how do I do OAuth? Or how do I do... REST correctly or GraphQL or these kind of decisions. So it really is such a broad thing. So that being said, so Amel kicked off like what we like. So we're gonna talk about what makes a good API and Amel enumerated a couple of uh, characteristics but she also says an API that she loves or really a philosophy around APIs which is the Unix philosophy. We thought it'd be nice to talk about, you know, APIs that we admire or that we think are good because when you talk about how do you design a good API, a lot of times the way you do something good is by imitation and you say, I think that thing over there is good. I'm gonna do it like that. This is how good authors become good oftentimes. They read a bunch of books and they find authors they admire and they say, ooh, I would like to write as well as this guy or that gal. And we can do that with APIs as well. So what are some APIs that we consider good here on the panel?
0: Honestly, I think for me, Uh, I love the GitHub API, uh, as, as problematic as maybe some, some consider it. Like, I think it's a really, like the REST API is a good example of like how to, you know, have good documentation, like structure, you know, like, um, yes, organize your resources, the jQuery API. I used to really like the React API, not so much anymore, but, um, I thought one of the reasons why React really took off initially was it really had a low over low amount of um, domain knowledge required to get started with it, right? Like it just leveraged a lot of JavaScript, and versus something like Angular, which I felt like at the time there was a lot of like cryptic knowledge around, like how do you how do you do loops in your templates in you know pipes and filters and all this other syntax that you had to learn that was custom to Angular, right? So like. Though like low domain knowledge is good when folks are using your tool, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's so many tools. I, I can't like Stripe has an incredible API, right? So it's it's usability plus documentation and like also uh, the way Stripe is handles its um, backwards compat is kind of amazing. You know, certain companies, you know, I've worked at in the past, are really are using actually very old uh, versions of the Stripe API, but it's not that. Like the company is maintaining Stripe isn't maintaining an old version of a package for one company. It's just that they've designed their API to just be backwards compat you know, at all layers, and that's really, really like very, very good design that really saves the company a lot of money and lets people have enterprise users because enterprise people, we know enterprise, we <laughs> one version for life. <laughs> <Like> that's enterprise, <laughs> you know. <laughs> So yeah, I mean, and we have Suze here who can talk all about Stripe, so.
2: Absolutely. Chris, what do you think? What are some APIs that you admire that you appreciate as a user of those?
3: Mm, Well, I don't do do a whole lot of um, work talking with, you know, web-based sorts of network APIs. But yeah, I think I agree that much of the GitHub API is pretty good. I often find myself frustrated, like, where is this thing? Well, it turns out the thing hasn't been implemented yet, or or maybe it has, but it's not been exposed to the user. And so that's where I just, like, start to, you know, pound my head on the keyboard, like, eh! But I like Async Await a lot, you know? Mm-hmm. I I picked up Promises pretty early. I mean, certainly before it was... I feel like it was before it was standardized. And... I was using Q, right? If you remember that uh, library that had a, pl- a promise implementation. Uh-huh. And so I wrote a whole lot of, you know, thens. And um, now I'm just, I do not touch then because I do not have to. Uh. And it is very nice. Um, I like using async await and promise.all to make sure I don't shoot myself in the foot with it. But yeah, that's, I, I'm really happy about that one.
2: That's a good one as well. Uh, Suze, anything I'd like to add? Stripe has a pretty good API, but we've covered that one. So
4: I can't talk about that because that would be biased. Um, You're right, I and mean, so <laughs> yeah, we've already just, said it. I mean, quick note though, when, so the first time I used the Stripe API, I was working at Kickstarter. Um, because Kickstarter transitioned to using Stripe for payments shortly before I started there. So we still had some work to do with just like making our um, implementation more robust. And I remember the first time I looked at the Stripe docs, you know, I I wasn't expecting a lot just because, you know, sometimes API docs are not the best and I'm sure that we'll get to this topic um, very Mm -hmm. soon too. But I looked at the the API docs and I was just so blown away because there were like the little things like you know putting your api your test mode api key in like embedded in the documentation and things like that so that the copy paste things just worked and stuff like that that actually made me say wow i would love to work at a company like stripe who has this attention to detail in their apis and so you know that is yeah. the reason why i'm working at stripe now because i had such a good experience with the api as an engineer i wanted to be part of improving that even further which is like really exciting Um, But uh, to to kind of like give a slightly less biased um, opinion, I've used a ton, and I mean a ton of APIs over probably the last five to 10 years. Um, And part of it is just due to hackathons. Part of it is just due to like the nature of my job. I think the biggest standouts for me have been um, whatever I reach for the most often. So I reach for Twilio all the time because... One, um, their SMS API, because I know they have a billion APIs now, but their SMS API and um, is just incredibly efficient. It, it's full-featured. It has e- even TwiML is like a great concept. So whenever I have to create a thing, and it's usually a web page scraper that texts me when something updates, right? That's always what I use Twilio for. I reach for it time and time again because it solves my problems so quickly, It's not that, oh, it's the kind of evil that I know the best. It it literally is a good experience, and that's why I reach for it every single time, because it solves a problem really quickly. The other things that I was impressed with when I worked at Microsoft was the cognitive, I can't believe, I only quit like a year and a half ago, and I forget what it was called, but the cognitive
0: APIs. Are you using Bing or Google to look up your... I'm using DuckDuckGo. (laughs) Just duck that it. Just, that tells just, you what kind just, of person I just, am. <laughs> just curious, you know. <laughs> do you duck
2: things or do you go them? I don't, I don't know how to verbify that.
0: Oh, yeah. I think
4: it's just literally cognitive services. Yeah, it's cognitive services. So that, you know, you don't have to, like, create all your bespoke artisanal, you know, um, artificial intelligence um, models and things like that. So if you want to do some relatively kind of, like, you know, cliche things with artificial intelligence, such as computer vision, automatic voice captioning and things like that, They have this huge family of different services, but it's a very nice interface to most of them via REST. Um, So I've been really impressed with how much you can do with just one API call with the cognitive services. That was always very impressive to me when I worked there, and I thought that that was a great example too.
2: Well, I won't add any because mine have already been said. Y'all stole mine. (laughs) But I will talk about a couple of library-style APIs. We already mentioned jQuery. I think jQuery's API was brilliant for many reasons, which you can go back to listen to that episode in Ode to jQuery, wherein we, re- we enumerate a lot of the reasons why. And therefore, anything that derives from that, Cypress being another one, a lot of tools. I like uh, Mocha's API, by the way, which is really a, a nice one as mm-hmm. well. Chris won't say it. <laughs> I like BDD-style test APIs, like RSpec style. You know, It should do this, it should do that. Those kind of APIs are nice. Uh, I come from the Ruby world, and there's some really nice APIs over there. Active Record for Ruby on Rails, which is an ORM, which allows you to manipulate a database in a way that I still think is unparalleled in its ease of access and just doing things from memory and from guess and check. Like you just guess and it does it the way that you want to. It's a nice API to look at if you are looking at developing APIs. But yeah, GitHub, Twitter's API used to be sick. Like I loved it. Now they've kind of. Bastardized it over the years, uh, much to their mm-hmm. shame, I think, and they're trying to recover, sort of, as they they treated third-party developers very poorly for a while there, and they're trying to recover that. But you know, trust is easy to ruin and hard to gain back. But their API used to be very solid. GitHub's is really good. I like the REST API, GraphQL. I'm just not totally into it yet, but I hear that's also a good one. Believe it or not, there is some design that has to go into a GraphQL API, even though it mm-hmm. is kind of like, you know, pick your own food. You do have to decide what's on the buffet, and we talked about that (laughs) uh, back on our GraphQL episode, where we used a buffet-style analogy for GraphQL, which it it works once in a while, but also has its faults. Most metaphors fall apart, and most sentences fall apart, and this one's also falling apart. Amel, what you got?
0: I don't know. I thought that that buffet analogy was pretty pretty strong. It's kind of a a hard thing to
2: follow, you know? We beat it to death on that episode. K-Ball really latched onto it. Really? Oh, yeah. K-Ball loved it. You got to go back and listen to that one.
4: Oh, yeah, Cable would have had a
0: field day.
2: He did. <laughs> I think that episode's called GraphQL is the bacon to your something.
0: <laughs> to your something. Yeah, no, I can imagine yeah, Cable like that. salsa dancing uh, throughout a bo- like around a buffet, you know, because he's such a good dancer. Have you seen him? Dance it? It is impressive.
2: Oh, he's really good at it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Very, very impressive. I think just to kind of piggyback off of Suze's uh, comment on Twilio, I would like plus a million that. That's a really one of the better APIs, because they've just put a lot into ramp up, I would say. Mm -hmm. And so what's really cool about just uh, tools that, you know, what I think that really invest in onboarding, right? So Mm -hmm. they kind of think of everything, you know, how can we make this a one-click experience, right? Or one line, you know, add, add the CDN, start working, you know, anything tools do to kind of reduce the time that you need to be productive, right? So if you need like an hour or more to be productive when you're importing a new tool like in 2020, I would say that's a very low bar, you know, so, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, so you should really like, you know, aim to kind of get folks productive as quickly as possible. Um, And that's a combination of docs, examples, starter kits, you know, there's many, many ways to do that, um, to kind of really round out like that number of like, you know, how many minutes is it going to take for a person to be productive when using my thing, whatever that is. And so you got to time time is money, money is time, right people? So got to keep it moving.
1: What's up, JS Party people? Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? Well, with Raygun Error and Performance Monitoring, you have all the information you need at your fingertips to quickly find and fix errors and performance issues across your tech stack down to the line of code. Raygun makes it easy to monitor the impact of your performance improvements, quickly identify issues across web and mobile apps, and see how your code performs in the hands of your customers. This saves you time, this saves you money, and this saves your sanity. Head to raygun.com to join thousands of customer centric software teams who use raygun every single day. Again, raygun.com to give them a try with a free 14 day trial.
3: When talking about what makes a good API, like, for me, I appreciate an API that is at the, like, it finds that sweet spot in terms of the level of abstraction. So, you know, when you are using one, like, for example, maybe you have this API you're talking to and you need to do some certain task. And to do that task, you need to make, like, four different function calls. Right, but then you you switch to this other other tool or library, and you only have to make one. Now, to me, like the one that only requires a single function call, probably like maybe better understands how its users are trying to use it. Right, like they've done that that research, and and um, they say, oh, well, this is a very common use case, and we're going to optimize for that. And so I think that's really important when designing an API is to really know how your users want to, what they want to get done and how they want to do it.
0: Yeah. You know what, Chris, you bring up a really amazing point and one that is definitely not lost on me because you're absolutely right. Like giving power users the ability to extend and override whether it's default options or whatever else is like super key, right? And I'd like to share a philosophy with you that I learned while working on a Scratch project, Scratch like MIT Scratch programming language for kids and really anybody, but it's uh mm-hmm. very cool. Check it out. We'll link it in the show notes, but Scratch has this really cool philosophy of how they approach their design, uh, API design, which is they want Scratch to basically have low floors such that, you know, it's easy for anyone to get started. They want it to have wide walls such that, you know, you can do many, many things with it, but then high ceiling so that like its power users can go as complex as they need to. You know, so the idea is low floors, wide walls, high ceiling, And, like, that's just such a, like, that's something that's stuck with me for so many years now. Like, you know, I I revisit it all the time. You know, when you're designing something, make it accessible for newbies to be productive right away and make cool things, you know, let people do lots of things with it and then let power users, like, you know, still, like, not be shackled, you know, and let let them, like, have the composability and extensibility that they need to do what they need to do. And so it's just such a good point, like.
3: You know, it's easier said than done, though, you know. Frequently, when I, because when I'm designing an API, it's generally some sort of library or something like that. And it's really a, like a, a tug of war between, okay, how easy should this be or how extensible should this be? And it's really tough to get that right. Yeah, one
4: thing that I've heard be described and this was actually, the first time I heard of it was was someone at Stripe mentioning it, but I'm not sure who the original person was. But this idea of a slow Reveal. And so, you know, when you first start using an API or you first start reading the docs for an API, it shows you how to do the thing that you're most likely going to want to do with it. Um, And then because the API has been designed intuitively with what it exposes, like as you want to do more complex things or as you start having corner cases with what you're trying to do. There's this really lovely way that the rest of the API reveals itself to you without you having to learn a ton of stuff right at the beginning if you're just trying to get started with it, and I think that is definitely in my opinion, one of the hardest problems to solve in API design is trying to find that compromise right there you know between power users and and beginners as we we've sort of been discussing right now.
2: I like that, the slow reveal. It makes me think about a swimming pool. You know, maybe you have the shallow end, and they even have the ones where you just walk right in, right, and just kind of go slowly down to three feet. And everybody can swim in that side of the pool, the kids, the adults, whomever. It's very accessible, it's achievable, and it's not even, it's not scary. But then you get, like, past a certain line, and it may go down to eight feet, it may go down to ten feet, you'll have a diving board, you'll have expert apparatus, and that area of the pool is clearly for a different audience but they can get the exact same access through that that shallow end as well how do you do that though how do you actually achieve a slow reveal i think you do have to know your audience to a certain degree first much like writers have to know who they're writing for i think api designers have to think who am i designing this api for and what does that audience look like or the best as you can but how do you like slowly reveal do you have to just think like what's the main thing everyone's gonna do and start there
4: Mm, a really simple version of this. So obviously there's lots of different tactics, but I would say that a really simple example that everyone can understand is having a ton of defaults of the way it operates and then actually having very smart and intuitive overrides. And so that way you're starting with little, but then when you see how extensible something is, kind of similar to what Preston Amal was saying, like people who want to then go and extend something, they can easily see like, jump to that section in the docs. And then the same methods that they were using this entire time actually have this whole next level of things that you can not necessarily leave as default, if that makes sense. I so, like that. Yeah, yeah smart yeah. smart defaults, I think, sort of like can kickstart that kind of slow reveal.
0: Yeah, and and the smart defaults thing is so important because we are not born as experts. Experts are made, you know, experts are made because experts were beginners at some point, right? Right. One day I was learning JavaScript, you know, right? And so that day is not today. But, you know, thanks to some level of low flooring, you know, I was able to learn, right? And so like, you have to keep the door open for folks. And I think one of the things that for me is so lost on many, many, many good tools and libraries in our community is context, you know? We don't often do a good job of setting context for users. Like, what is this tool being used for? Why was it made? What problems is it solving? What's some prior art? You know, like a lot of that stuff is accumulated over time and experience. And, you know, but for someone who's brand new to something, you know, that context is really key. And so, you know, it's very important to also, yeah, so between like the good defaults to get new folks, you know, ramping up and not just even new folks, anybody productive right away, right? Webpack did this with like its zero config, Mm -hmm. you know, create react app kind of did that, you know, we don't, don't worry about the tooling, just focus on learning the API, right? And really, like, I would say there's so much restraint that API makers, whatever, have to practice in order to kind of keep that floor low. Because one of the things that's really challenging is when you're a maintainer of a project, you have all the context in your head and you're actually kind of the worst person to write the docs because of that, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's a challenging thing. Like you have to, it's almost like you need a team of people to, who are able to mirror and ask you questions and make sure that like, you're keeping that floor low because you, you need a reality check to keep you honest. It's very challenging as a maintainer to write good docs for, for people who are new to the tool, you know?
2: Okay. So what are some other aspects that make for good API design? I think one thing that I go back to is that good API design, like actually you can just take the API part out and still most of the rules still apply. Like what is good design? Or you could say, what is good software design? Because again, go back to like you're writing a function that you're going to use. You are API designing, right? Whether you think about it like that or not, you are. And then of course you could take the software out and say, well, good design principles apply to good software design not one-to-one or not every single one, but generally speaking. So when I think about good design, there are a couple of things that I go back to, a couple of principles and idioms. Solid.
0: Solid. Yeah, that's a solid one. Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, The the one that I was thinking of, which kind of plays into this conventional idea and into the uh, everyone comes in through the same entrance, but then you can dig deeper, is the idea of the... Principle of least surprise or principle of least astonishment, where there's sensible defaults, or you know, the, the configuration is provided for you, what makes sense for most people. And then as you navigate and expand your use of that API, it works the way that you think it's going to work. Right? As you explore, you can a great API. GitHub is like this. Chris says sometimes he gets mad because he tries to find something and it ends up that's not even part of their API, but he probably could have guessed where it was if it was there, right? Like the things are where that you'd expect them to be. And that's the principle of least surprise is it should work how you think it it should work. And that allows people to explore and learn much quicker without constantly referencing the documentation. In fact, if you're trying to bring joy to a user, the best thing you can do for us is make us feel smart. And you know when I feel smart is when I can just guess where this part of the API is, or oh, how do I do this? Oh, I bet I know how I do this because I understand RESTful APIs. It should live under slash users, or it should be, I post this to there. And when it is, then you're like, oh, I don't actually need the docs anymore. I've figured it out, and I can just keep doing what I'm going to do. And so try not to surprise people. Try to put things in obvious, clear places, whether it's endpoints, or whether it's function names, or whether it's the way you accept arguments. And one of the ways you can be less surprising and less astonishing is to stay consistent. So if you accept a certain parameter to a function, and you accept that in multiple functions, always accept it in the same order, if it's an ordered thing, right? Mm -hmm. Take it first every time. You know, the jQuery again goes back to a very good example of this, right? You can call all these functions and use them pretty much the exact same way and you find a new function, and you're like, I wonder if I could chain this on like I could the other ones. Oh yes, I can do it the exact same way I've been doing everything else. It's not surprising. It's actually obvious. It's hard to be obvious. We we take it for granted when it's there. But to come up with the obvious solution is difficult. That's why it's called design. And it makes me think of a book which is very famous in the design world called uh, it's called Don't Make Me Think, I believe. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, one of these books that everybody buys. I've never read it because I already got what I think from the title. <laughs> it's a great design of a title. I already know what he's going to say, and I completely agree with him. I'm sure there's tons of good details in there. But a good API doesn't make you think, or at least tries its best to be consistent and not surprise you. And I think that's one aspect of a good API.
0: Wow. Yeah. I would say that that book really targets its audience, doesn't it? Like, yeah, it does. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, you know, you open the book and it's actually just blank pages. <laughs> 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 Empty book. Yeah, it
4: could be. Bestseller. I think yeah. it's a bestseller.
0: No, Jared, you had some like amazing points and really like the whole thing of like, just don't do something unpredictable, right? Like solid helps you kind of align to that solid principles, but you know, and do one thing well and just, I, I think keeping things modular and Just don't throw curveballs at people that are, you know, like, don't name a function, get blah, 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 and then have that function be actually doing a mutation or a post, you know, like, naming also, like, is a way to signal, like, what this thing is supposed to do, you know,
4: Mm -hmm.
0: but you know what, I kind of want to take it back a little bit, because I, I can't believe no one brought up Git, because Git for me is like, one of my favorite APIs. I love Git. I'm like a power user. I have reached the point in my Git Gitfu where it's like, I'm not afraid of like looking at my ref log or I'm not afraid of complex merges or whatever. Like, it's fine. I rebase all the time. I squash, whatever. You know, the API is just so good. And one of the reasons why it's also so good is because, you know, you just get uh man and like you can see the the docs right there in your terminal you don't have to like context switch you know what flag was this thing or how do i do this thing like the docs are right there it's very hard to beat that you know it's very hard to beat like that experience of not having to leave your terminal while you're learning you know like learning something and mm-hmm. using an api and not having to you know it's very hard to beat
2: i'm going to diverge on this one because i like git as a tool i think it's very powerful but i don't find its api or its, its interface was very difficult.
4: I'm on Jared's side here. Yeah, yeah. I agree, Jared.
2: <laughs> I do know it now, and I yeah. do think it's powerful, and I appreciate what it does. Yeah. So I think technologically, it's spectacular. And the fact that the, the man pages and everything have gotten a lot better, and everything is right there at your fingertips, so I'm with you on all those points. Yeah. I, I think agree. the actual yeah. like, command line interface, which is an interface is it's hard to learn difficult to learn
0: yeah you know it's
2: really hard to learn once you learn it it's kind of like stockholm syndrome but uh for me at least it was hard for me to pick up
4: yeah there's no slow reveal there's no consistency in flags that's very true actually (laughs) like it almost feels like every context within git is like this completely separate story you have to learn like it feels like it's a bunch of tools thrown in together to kind of achieve the one goal you have which is distributed versioning yeah, like it's amazing how I use it on a daily basis and still every time I delete a tag or re- rename a branch, they're, they're the two things that I get wrong every single time because they're different between the different commands with the flags. Yeah. yeah.
0: I have to concede to all of you because I think you're, <laughs> I think you're right. I think I'm confusing my love of the tool and what it does with yeah. the ease of use, and you're absolutely right. It did take me a number of years to get to where I am, Right. And it wasn't easy. And, and I think you're right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna walk that back. Okay. <laughs> I was wrong. You use is right. Um, <laughs> you know, I think you're right. But but it's but it's interesting, though, isn't it? Like, imagine a world where everyone could become an expert in get like within a month. Like, I- imagine that right. world. That would be a different world, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I feel like GitHub is kind of interestingly bridging that gap a little bit with all of their UI. Like, I don't know if most people realize this, but I'm I'm gonna maybe blow your mind. Pull requests aren't a thing inside <laughs> of Git. Does everybody know that? Do you, does anyone know that like pull requests aren't a thing? Like, so if you go to projects like um, Mozilla and you know Chromium and. All these things are Linux too. Linux. Linux, Yeah. Yeah. They use patches.
2: They email each other patches.
0: (laughs) Emailing (laughs) each other files. (laughs) Okay. Like, you know, some of the most important projects in the world are not on Git. Well,
2: they're on Git. Well, no, sorry.
0: They're not on GitHub. Sorry, sorry. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for correcting that. So, you know, it's just funny. It's like it is what you know, it is what it is. WebKit is not on Git, by the way. It's I think unless that's changed in the past like two years. I don't know.
2: Well, there was a long time where there was Mercurial versus Git, and it was not Git was not the de facto. It was like yeah. they had to battle it out, kind of like VHS and Betamax. Right. And Mercurial has kind of gone the route of Betamax, but it still has its uh, constituents for sure. Right. And I think right. I think Mercurial actually has a better uh, API, well, interface. I don't know if it's oh, a programming interface, but at least the command line interface is yeah. way more approachable, which is one of the reasons why people liked it.
0: Mm. that's interesting. But GitHub
2: really mitigated that
0: yeah but isn't it interesting though that like github just made i feel like it just really bridged the gap in so many ways with like confusion on the terminal and what you can do and right like now you can even like suggest comments in line in a pull request you know and you can actually like say like, hey, here's a suggested change, you know, and someone can accept it, you know. And so essentially oh, yeah. they're, you're kind of abstracting away people's need to ever use a terminal between that and then their, you know, GitHub UI. To, uh, so I don't know. So basically, the, the I think the lesson for you here, kids, is if you build a bad API, someone is going to build an abstraction <laughs> around you <laughs> that make lots of money. Layer.
3: Yeah, make lots of money.
0: Man, make lots of money, really, because re- even at NPM, I mean, like there's so many things with NPM that were like missing or not there and mainly because the team was like under-resourced and had so many other things to do, right? But the community built all these things around NPM that should have actually been in NPM. For example, bundlephobia or un- unpackage or, you know what I mean? There's so many features that like would be great to just be in NPM directly, yeah. but people had to build abstractions around it because it wasn't supported you know, with the mm-hmm. NPM API. And so Yarn even, right? Like workspaces wasn't a thing. And so oh, but we're gonna build an abstraction around right. the, our connection to the registry. And so just lesson mm-hmm. learned, like if you're not solving it well, someone else is going to solve it better and faster.
4: That's a great point.
1: What up friends, you might not be aware, but we've been partnering with Linode since 2016. That's a long time ago. Way back when we first launched our open source platform that you now see at changelaw.com. Linode was there to help us and we are so grateful. Fast forward several years now and Linode is still in our corner behind the scenes, helping us to ensure we're running on the very best cloud infrastructure out there. We trust Linode, they keep it fast, and they keep it simple get $100 in free credit at linode.com/changelog again $100 in free credit at linode.com/changelog
2: So Emil, you mentioned solid, and I think we should probably just lay out what that is. So those are a set of really object oriented programming design principles, which have been formalized in books and courses and stuff. And there there's five principles there. I don't know them all because I don't write good code. Uh, <laughs> single responsibility, I know open-closed, the L, I don't know, it's like somebody's name.
0: Yeah, Liskov.
2: Liskov. there Lyskov. you go. Liskov
0: substitution principle, yeah.
2: There you go, dependency inversion is another one. So yeah. they, these are all good things to, to learn and to apply in any sort of software design, specifically object-oriented software, which a lot of times if you think about an API, it's a lot like an object, right? It's kind of a black box that you access via the way it exposes itself and you don't care how it works behind the scenes. So it's very much an object-oriented thing. But that's that. We'll, we'll link up the Wikipedia page as a starting place. There's a little, it's a deep dive in the solid. But it's definitely something you should be familiar with.
4: I like that you brought up like people shouldn't have to be able to care about like how you've implemented it and things like that. Because I think the, the thing that gets my goat the most about badly designed APIs is when you can feel the limitations that the software engineers who designed the API were running into. And you can feel that they've pushed that work back onto you. And they've leaked, like it's called like implementation leakage, like it's basically made something harder for the user when the user should never have had to care about it in the first place, because you ran into a specific limitation that isn't even relevant, you know, to mm. having to limit the library, if that makes sense. And that sounds like very abstract. So I can give an example.
2: Please do. Yeah. Because yeah, I'm trying to think of one. I can't.
4: It's really hard to think of it. Actually, I have two examples, so I'll cover React at first. So the thing that annoys me about React is that when you have a loop and you're iterating and you're spitting out things like based on an array or a map and you're returning components, you have to give it a key attribute, right? And it barks at you if you don't do that. That is not something that should ever have to be necessary, in my opinion, in an API. You should not have to actually give a numeric key in order for React to be able to do its thing properly. It has no bearing on your app at all. You'll probably never, ever use it. And so warning you that you didn't do it and forcing you to when you're not even going to use it in the first place, I think that's implementation linkage.
2: That's a really good point. I've always just been annoyed by that, but I thought yeah. it was just me. So I'm glad you've actually like empowered me to complain more. Like that's, yeah. Why do I got to pass that to you all the time? It's such a pain. It's
4: I- really annoying. And the, another example is like having to use class name instead of class. That's literally implementation leakage. And I actually really don't like working with React and think there are better options out there for these reasons. But again, that's not like, let's not do a turf war. One concrete example that I can talk about that happened in open source for me with Stripe was we released official types for the Node.js client library recently because there was like a definitely typed community contribution. And then we actually put in a type definition into our actual library. We knew that this was going to be something that we would have to maintain going forward. And we wanted to know how expensive it would be to maintain. And we wanted to know, um, you know, just how much attention to give it. Right. So we really wanted to know who's actually using types in this library versus not using types. We just want to see like, what's the word? Adoption. Adoption. That's the word. Thank you. Yes. (laughs) You're welcome. So we didn't really have a good way of being able to see that in the telemetry and track that property that was introduced where if you wanted to use the typescript types when you instantiated the library you needed to specify a property that was typescript true right and when i saw this like i immediately burst into flames because like you know it's just implementation leakage is like the hill that i die on at all times mm. and so i saw it and i just said hey i'm just curious you know what's this property about what what was the technical limitation where someone can't just use the types out of the box and they said well We actually just want to know through telemetry, if they set that, then we know they're using it. And so we've made it a mandatory property just so that we can get accurate adoption statistics. And it's really just for the user so that we know if we can give more resources to it and we can argue for more resources at work to maintain it. So it was actually in the spirit of actually helping the user, but also having them specify that it's just not an idiomatic thing that you should have to do with TypeScript. It felt weird. And sure enough, we got people on Twitter asking about it. And so we had a big conversation about it. We were like, okay, so is it really that important that we know adoption? And can we really just commit to actually maintaining this, right? And can we maybe talk to users after a while to just see what the adoption actually is in other ways? And so we ended up pulling the plug and we completely removed that property that same day and released it. And I felt that was a huge win, but it is really interesting how quickly you can just leak one property and then, you know, it, it kind of opens the gate for other leakage as well. So,
0: Yeah. Wow. It's almost like, I wish you could lint that. Wouldn't that be cool if you could like automate it? It's like, where it's like, hey, yeah. am I leaking my implementation details? Like, yes or no? You know?
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems like a nuanced thing.
0: Very nuanced.
2: I feel like I've I can sense that as somebody who's just used a lot of APIs, but I've never been able to verbalize it like you do. Like, maybe you have a superpower for, like, that's leakage right there. Cause I don't know if I'd actually identify something as leakage, even though I could probably know, I could point it out in retrospect, like, yeah, that was that. So it seems like a nuanced thing to be able to actually determine, like, this is an implementation detail, not something that's, you know, should be on the external side of your API.
0: Yeah, but in, in all fairness though, Suze, like you brought up such a good point about the React class name because <laughs> no, really, like all of the deviations between JSX and HTML could have easily been abstracted and handled in by the compiler. Like there's no reason to like expose that to the user, you know, and like confuse them and or confuse designers who maybe are working in co-working with you and you, you know what I mean? Um so I think that's like such a good point point. and from my understanding like the React team Like that's just the decision they can't easily go back on right now. Mm -hmm, Exactly. If they could do it differently, they would at this point. But it's just, you know, I, I also think like this is why it's important to have a diverse team designing an API. Right. To kind of bring it back to like empathy, because you have blind spots as an engineer, no matter how good you are, you know, always, always you have blind spots. And so having people validate your work Use it. Make sure it works for their use cases, and and hopefully having those people maybe not be like you, whether it's demographically, you know, whether it's they're, they're working on a different thing, whether they, you know, just like diversity in all factors counts here. Uh, is just someone that's not you, ideally, you know.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. So we've covered a lot of ground here, but we have not covered one of the mainstays of APIs and good APIs is documentation mm-hmm. we've talked about it as we revered certain apis we talked about their docs and i will say that stripe gives a lot of credit here because they did come out with great api docs web-based readable things with the all of the little details which has since been emulated and repeated elsewhere so we're thankful for that but uh, stripe doesn't stand out quite like it used to but that's because everybody basically copied that and they're like, oh, this is great. You know, you have to give respect to the ones who changed the game. You know, this is why Michael Jordan will always be the greatest basketball player because he actually invented all the things that these guys now do. That's just, <laughs> that's a hill I'll die on. But, you know, Stripe really did that. So like a lot of the things that you see, like having the curl commands or like the, the four different languages that you can just like click your language and see what the call looks like in your language. Stripe invented a lot of those ideas and it was amazing. But thankfully, it's gone across the industry now a lot, especially businesses that run APIs have good docs. But again, to go to the APIs in the small, right? Your functions, your packages, your modules, your libraries, these things are all APIs. And even if they, they adhere to these principles like least surprise, uniform access pattern, like all these things. Still, you have to describe what's going on, folks. So <laughs> we can't, you can't just leave us out there to, to figure it out ourselves. We need help. That's like the core of accessibility is like telling people about your API. So docs have to be there. What what makes them good?
0: Wait a second. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on, hold on, Jared. Are you trying to say that my code isn't good enough for you? Like reading my <laughs> code isn't just intuitive enough for you? Like it's just too much work or something? Like why do I need to put this into like? English text when you can just read the code. Not your
2: code, Emil. Yours is fine. (laughs) Yours is great. (laughs)
0: Yeah, yeah, Yeah. no, I, uh, for for anybody who maybe uh, that bad joke was lost on, that was (laughs) definitely not a true statement from me. But yeah, I don't know, I I go back and forth between like, do I need to put comments in my docs or I mean, in my code or not? Mm -hmm. You know, it's tough, because there's there's comments and documentation that like, is like an application is very different than a library, right? Because a library, for example, or a tool that's publicly facing or whatever, like there's version uh, management and all kinds of stuff that's a little more baked in and it's, you know, application code is, I don't know, that's tough, it's a tough one. I I don't know, what do you think, Chris? Like, I I wanna hear from Mocha Man. Mocha Man.
2: Mocha, Mocha Man.
0: (laughs) Has anybody ever called you Mocha Man? I wanna be a Mocha Man. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Okay, Chris is, okay, Suze is literally falling uh, off her chair. This is the greatest yes. moment in J.S. Party, in my opinion. Mo- <laughs> Wait, no, no. I think the greatest moment is going to be hearing his reaction to being called <laughs> Mocha Man. Go for it, Mocha Man. Go for it.
3: I'm going to have to ignore that. Um, so <laughs> what was the? Uh, it was... I uh, told
0: you. told you.
3: <laughs> uh,
0: I want to uh, Comments
3: and stuff. Okay, so like I tend to comment. I, I comment my code a lot. Me too. Because I think I'm probably not that good, and so my code is not self-documenting like the (laughs) geniuses. Like um, you know <laughs> who who write self documenting code, and so what, what I write in, in the comments tends to be this is my intent for what I'm trying to do here. Right. I mean, right, it's right. it's useless if you know it's just explaining what the code does,
2: not how you're doing or what you're doing, but why. Yeah, exactly. And as soon
3: as you go and change that code and you don't update the comment, then the comments out of sync with the code, and it's yeah. just horrible. But I think it's really important for if you're writing code that somebody else is going to come along and try to read and understand is to, is to make sure that your intent is clear because, you know, I don't know if you've heard of Chesterton's fence, right? No. It's, I don't even know where it came from, but I know it's, it's like a thing on Wikipedia where it's like, okay, there's a fence out in the middle of the road and someone comes along and says, yeah, why is this fence in the road? Let's tear it down. Like that doesn't make sense. And then, I don't know. The moral of the story, skip ahead, is that, you know, you shouldn't remove the fence if you don't know why it's there <laughs> yeah, right exactly yeah it's there for a reason even though you don't know what it is right right and yeah. and so i don't want to write code where it's not clear why it's there because that's like the worst thing if you're in the business of like maintaining software long term is to have this code that you're afraid to touch <laughs> because you, <laughs> you don't know what really the intent was in that in that bit of code and so I, I feel like the like comments from you know on that level. But if we're talking like user-facing APIs, yeah, I try to use doc strings and I try to auto-generate API documentation for my libraries whenever I can. You know, I'll try to provide uh, type declarations, though I don't write TypeScript. I think it's necessary for even the most simple and small libraries. Like if you look at any of uh, Sindri Sorhus's libraries out there, they're all tiny, but they all have documentation, they all have typings, and they're all consistent. So you know that, oh, if I want the sync version of this thing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit the .sync function, right? And so I think it's, I think it's really important to have that, that good documentation in place just like, I don't know, it just seems like you got to have it. It's basic. Actually,
0: so uh, Mocha Man, just kidding. I'm gonna stop now. Okay, maybe one more time. Just kidding. No, I won't, I won't, I won't, I won't. Okay. So Chris.
2: Yes. <laughs> I don't know, I don't know what's coming next, but I'm scared. So
0: Nobody has mentioned yet the importance of tests as a communication of intent and documentation as well. Like I feel like tests really can document your code as well as mm-hmm. like the like intent and whatever else. So I think like one of the many benefits of tests is that they serve as a point of documentation. So, you know, write tests people. Like and tests are first class. Yeah. If for production code, first class, I'm sorry.
3: It's like a thing you don't see a lot in JS. It's because I think the community and the culture hasn't really picked up on it. But if you look at an ecosystem like Rust, like all the API documentation, they're really big on automatic API documentation in Rust, and that's cool. There's, you know, other shortcomings in the documentation, but, like, having these tests present, and that's, like, part of the, the, maybe I'm not even thinking of the right thing, but it's essentially, like, assertions are part of the documentation, and you can look at the code sample, and the code sample is a test, and it makes an assertion about... Um, the result of, of, you know, your API call. And you can copy and paste that and just, and just run it. And um, I think that's great. I think that's something that I would hope to see more of in JavaScript. Um, but, you know, we don't do it here. Uh, and, I mean, JavaScript's more about the kind of free-form uh, readme <laughs> instead of these really s- strict uh, API docs. In, mm-hmm. in Rust, every crate has these API docs, but not in JavaScript. Which is too bad. I will
2: add my amen to that. We did an entire episode on docs. Safia led it. It was really good. We did a deep dive. Obviously, we're not going to do a deep dive right now. That's episode 50 of JS Party, uh, hosted by Safia Abdallah. Chris, you were on that show. I was on that show. So surely we said things that were interesting. I don't remember them. Maybe I should go back and listen as well. But uh, if you want more on documentation definitely check out episode 50. We're running short on time. Any final thoughts on APIs? What makes them good? What makes them bad? Uh, Etc. Before we call it a day.
3: It's okay to provide a low-level API if you are clear about who, who you're <laughs> directing that, uh, yeah. You know, if you're clear about who your audience is. And so, you know, there are tools out there that that are really low-level. That's a good point. And people probably shouldn't be using directly, but they are anyway, because there's no reasonable abstraction, like, yet around them. I can think of a few in JavaScript. So, I mean, it's okay to do that, but you don't have to make a... a, No library you make has to be, like, totally high-level all the way to low-level. You don't have to do this slow-reveal. Um, you know, depending on the scope of what you're trying to provide users.
0: Yeah. You know, it's funny, actually, the Fetch API, Fetch, like F-E, you know, I, I'm not going to spell it. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Yeah, <laughs> we get it. So Fetch. the Fetch API was actually designed as a low-level API that was supposed to be for library authors and whatnot, similar to, like, typed arrays and... Atomics and shared array buffer and blah, 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 blah. All these other low level APIs that like, you know, maybe the average web developers are like, IDK, what do I do with this? You know, they're designed to be used by libraries, you know, that abstract, create abstractions that are useful for developers to use. But fetch was actually, it was a really big surprise when the community started adopting fetch like at scale. And so, you know, that's interesting how that worked out, but I don't see much use of typed array buffer, shared array buffer or anything else like I don't think too many people are using things like that that are low level.
3: I tried to use it a couple of days ago. It was unusable.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like we said earlier, good API design is, is a hard thing, you know, mm-hmm. for sure.
2: There's also a lot of constraints in software, you know. So we talk about ideals a lot because, of course, we're not going to talk about things that are kind of good, right? Like we're talking about what it could be the best but we know that as we go out and build things, that the real world hits up against our ideals and we have to make trade-offs. And so sometimes you have to suffer your API design or the purity or the, the principles, right? They have to suffer at the behest of the amount of time you have to spend on this, the amount of money you have to spend on this, the team, right, your own knowledge. Because one of the things we know is that we don't know everything. And so I'll know more later is pretty much the way I live my life. And so as you're designing your API, you may think you have designed the best thing you can do until six months later when it hits the real world. And you realize that design doesn't actually hold up. So one thing we can tend to do as software developers is get stuck in the paradox of choice, right? And the analysis paralysis and just not ever get that API done because we want it to be perfect. But you actually do have to move things forward. And so you may not be able to design the perfect API today and you may never get to that perfect point but you design what you know and you ship it and then you find out more once people start using it so don't forget that as well (sighs) anything else Suze? final words before we call the show
4: yeah i wanted to actually share an article that was again sorry to plug stripe but we have this (laughs) magazine that we put out called ink
2: this episode brought to you by. And I just- <laughs> <laughs>
4: yeah, we should we should talk about a deal here, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should. <laughs> so, Stripe puts out a magazine called Increment Magazine, and our latest issue is actually about APIs. So, it's very timely to this episode. All of the articles are really, really, really good. Oh.
0: Yep, Jared's just holding his. Own. I'm a
2: subscriber to the Increment magazine.
0: I read it on the internet. I should subscribe. I didn't know you could do that. I just it's like so cool. The,
2: There's a print edition like that. I just wanted to support
4: that. They only just started distributing the print edition, so it's a newish thing. Oh wow! Uh, well, well, well. But one article I want to call out because this is almost like a sort of a, a futures segue to take us out is uh-huh. there is an article in that specific edition called "How Should We Build the APIs Tomorrow." Um, And it's by my colleague, Toma. And it just talks about the fact that because we use computers and services at a rapidly kind of evolving pace, we're starting to find that, you know, a lot of things that we've talked about today on what makes a good API and how to write one might actually start limiting us too much in these compromises that we're making, given um, how many people are coming online and the different sort of even networking challenges we're seeing with that. So I think that it's a great read because it just talks about the fact that we're sort of starting to hit a ceiling and maybe we should be letting go of some of the status quo around how we do APIs now and like what we should sort of rebuild, you know, in order to kind of get to the next level of of being better at this kind of thing. So um, I really loved the article. It was a really satisfying read. And even though it doesn't answer a lot of the questions that it poses, that's kind of on us, you know, as a developer community Mm -hmm. in general to to start kind of trying to think outside the box a little bit. So I just thought it was a really great one to inspire people to think beyond what we currently do with
0: APIs.
2: Sounds awesome.
0: I'm inspired just thinking about it.
2: Yeah, (laughs) definitely will need to check that out. Well, listeners, all the links to all the things mentioned on the show will be in your show notes. You know where those are. They're there for your easy clickings. Definitely check out that article. Check out some of the other things mentioned. That's our time for this week. That's our show. Hey, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I'll talk to you next time. It's December, which means you're probably dusting off the old blog to write your best of 2020 post. It's been a rough year, but we hope JS Party has been a bright spot for you throughout. If so, we would love to be included in your 2020 favorites let us know when you publish we'll share it around our circles and if you love what we're up to help us help you by joining changelog plus plus it's our membership program so you can directly support our work and make the ads disappear check it out at changelog.com plus plus thanks again to breakmaster cylinder for the beats and our sponsors for having our back fastly linode and Long that's all for this episode. Next week, Adam Wadden from Tailwind CSS joins Nick, Farras, and myself for an information-dense episode that we managed to make ridiculous in typical JS Party fashion. Stay tuned for that one. hitting your feed next week.
1: In five-plus years of writing JS full-time, I've basically never needed to know it.